The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the seminary, and I have with me in the studio Mr. Frederick Marsenak and Dr. Joseph Piper to go over a denominational debrief for this year's PCA General Assembly. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me in the studio. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you, Zach. Let me point out that uh, Mr. Marcinak is a ruling elder at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church and also newly elected chairman of the board of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. So today we're going to discuss the 46th General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. It was held on June 12th through 14th in Atlanta, Georgia at the Hyatt Regency Hotel. It was hosted by Metro Atlanta Presbytery. They did a fine job organizing everything, and our thanks go out to them. And Mr. Marcinak, as Dr. Pipe has said, is chairman of the Board of Trustees here at the seminary. He's a ruling elder and clerk of session, if I'm not mistaken, at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church in Simpsonville, South Carolina. Those of you who have been around the seminary for a while recognize Woodruff Road as the wonderful host of our annual theology conference, but also as a wonderful host to many students and faculty members here in the upstate. He's also served as moderator of Calvary Presbytery. He's a practicing attorney and partner at Smith Moore Leatherwood Attorneys at Law here in Greenville, and he holds degrees from the Citadel, University of Sussex, and the University of South Carolina School of Law. And um, he and his wife, Tara, have three young children, and they live in Simpsonville. And uh, I am pleased to say that we all attend church together. My kids get along pretty well with his kids. They play on the playground together. It's a good thing. So, men, uh, I want to address the first question to Mr. Marcinak, since he's a ruling elder in the room. We don't frequently have ruling elders with our denominational debriefs, so I have a pointed question for you. As a ruling elder and engaged churchman, what do you do to prepare yourself for general assembly? Well, that's a good question, Zach. And, you know, it's one of the one of the issues, and I'm sure we'll talk about it today, is, is ruling elder attendance uh, at general assembly, and that, that ruling elder attendance has has declined over the years as a proportion of total attendance. And one of the things is it's it's difficult as a ruling elder to stay engaged with denominational issues throughout the year. And so to answer your question, I think to prepare for a general assembly there's not a period of, you can't prepare with simply a period of intense preparation right before the assembly. You have to make some effort to stay engaged on denominational issues throughout the year uh, to keep up with those uh, however you can. Part of that means going to presbytery regularly, understanding what's happening at, at, at presbytery level, uh, reading various uh, resources that, that highlight uh, what's going on in the denomination, and I think going to more than one assembly, going to uh, consecutive assemblies, uh, as, as, as you know, if you've been to the General Assembly, uh, they don't exist in isolation. So there are committees that are created in prior years. There are issues that are discussed in prior years and that are carried over. And so really going to uh, as many consecutive assemblies as you can to build up a knowledge base is, is vital to uh, preparation. So that's sort of the base line preparation. But then there is a period of more intense preparation just before the assembly. The commissioner handbook with all of the materials for the assembly, which is in excess of a thousand pages, uh, arrives about a month before general assembly. And then there are supplements to that. 
and it takes time to, to read that and to be prepared for the assembly. One of the, the, the helps with that, though, is we all know that every year there are routine uh, agency reports, committee reports that are handled, and then there are the, the issues that are going to be particularly important issues and that are going to consume a lot of time and thought. And so in preparing, it helps to focus on the big issues uh, and, and to focus time and effort on those. So, I, you know, I would say that's um, how I view preparing for General Assembly. Frederick, you're an attorney, so you would have some familiarity with Robert's Rules of Order. Would it be good for when sessions are sending their ruling elders to Presbytery, particularly the first couple of times, our General Assembly, that there be some uh, basic review on the, on the Rules of Order? I think one of the—that would be helpful in a number of areas, not just for— uh, for new ruling elders, certainly be helpful there. But one of the things that, that I know you've seen at General Assembly and that we see every year is the Assembly gets bogged down in procedural discussions and there are points of order and then debates. And uh, it's not unusual to see a man stand up and say, uh, I want to make a motion to do such and such. However, however that needs to be phrased, I want to make that motion. Um, or to make a motion that's clearly out of order or to make a motion that, that, that doesn't make sense within the context of where the Assembly is. So the rules are designed to ensure smooth operation, but because a fair number of the commissioners do not know the rules, we get bogged down as an assembly. So certainly that would help uh, with preparation. And thankfully, there are two or three masters of parliamentary procedure at the assembly who will oftentimes stand up and under the guise of a parliamentary inquiry, uh, set the assembly right on where we need to be. But yes, that would be good good preparation. And here in our uh, ecclesiology policy course, we actually uh, take the men through a review of Robert's Rules so that our men are better churchmen. Exactly. That is one way we equip men to be churchmen, as our mission states. Frederick, uh, one of the intense preparations uh, that that men have to make uh, right before General Assembly is frequently serving on committees that require advanced work. I know you've been on Overtures Committee in the past, and we'll, we'll talk about Overtures Committee in a little bit, but did you serve on any particular committees requiring advanced work this year? I was, I was not on a Committee of Commissioners this year. I have been on several in the past, Been have, as you mentioned, have been on the Overtures Committee in the past, uh, but not this year. I did not participate in a committee. Um, and, the you know, the, the work that the committees do varies. Overtures is, is always an important committee. The other committees of commissioner, uh, the work they do varies in terms of importance. Sometimes it is, it is quite important. Uh, for example, uh, two years ago, there was a proposal that came from the administrative committee to form an ad interim committee to study the role of women in the church. And that was one of the more debated items of that year's assembly, and it came through the committee of commissioners on the on the administrative committee. So uh, so that work varies, but but this year I did not have... Well, and they recommended against it, if I remember correctly, and the assembly overruled the committee. That's correct. And so you have um, you have the permanent committees, and then you have committees of commissioners that are appointed each year that provide, I don't want to use the word check, but provide some kind of input into the permanent committees and, and what happens, right? Well, actually, and I stated this on the floor, uh, as we formed the PCA, they were a check because we um, did not want to give autonomy to any permanent committee or agency. The committee commissioners actually were carefully to scrutinize the work and the report and the minutes of the permanent committees. Now they're pretty much rubber stamp. And so that whole level of accountability uh, has greatly been lost. 
and the idea behind the committees of commissioners. It, it can be confusing if you're not familiar with the PCA's structure, permanent committees, committees of commissioners, but the idea is you have permanent committees of the General Assembly, some of which are called boards, boards of Covenant College, of Covenant Seminary, for example, of Ridgehaven, but they all function as committees of the assembly and the, the committee's rules, or sorry, the assembly's rules say that. But the permanent committees meet throughout the year, but because an assembly of over 1,300 commissioners cannot scrutinize all of the work of these permanent committees, there are committees of the General Assembly, committees of commissioners, that meet the day before General Assembly convenes that are charged with reviewing the work of the permanent committees uh, as, an, as an arm of the assembly. Now, Frederick, you read those reports as I did. Was there any report, in your opinion, that came to the committee commissioners that had an ounce of accountability outside of recommending a budget to the editing committee and rehiring the uh, executive, whatever they call them, coordinator? Yeah, I think it's been, it's it's become uh, more difficult for the committees of commissioners to um, to monitor the the permanent committees and agencies that they are charged with monitoring. This year, based on the state of clerk's data from 60% of churches that provide data to him, um, that's not a great quotient, by the way. I know it frustrates him as much as it frustrates anybody. But the PCA consists of 1,568 churches. It's a growth uh, last year of about 27. And we have 344 mission churches this year, and an overall membership count, at least what has been reported of 374,736 members. Now, that's a conservative estimate because we don't receive statistical data from uh, many churches. Now, how many men, Frederick, came to GA this year as voting commissioners? Statistics show, I think, that it was in excess of 1,500 commissioners that we had this year, which if, uh, which I believe is, is the highest number that we've had. I could be wrong on that, but it's the highest number that I remember seeing in recent years, Fifteen over 1,500 commissioners. It's more than we had last year, um, uh, so it's, it's a, approximately 70 more than we had last year. Uh, but of those, the thing to note there is that the substantial majority continue to be teaching elders. So we had about 1,200 teaching elders of those 1,500 commissioners, and only a little over 300 were ruling elders. Uh, now that continues to be something that I think everyone across the, across the board says, we think that is a problem. We would like to have more ruling elders, but we haven't seemed to come up with a, a good solution to get there. They did shorten the schedule of General Assembly this year, uh, and so instead of instead of convening on Tuesday evening, General Assembly convened on Wednesday at one o'clock p.m. Wednesday in the afternoon. So, you know, a, a ruling elder. One of the causes they say of low ruling elder attendance is the inability to take off time from work to be at General Assembly. So they, if if you were um, if you were not serving on a committee as a ruling elder this year, you really didn't have to come to Atlanta until maybe Wednesday morning if you lived close enough to drive, um, and if you could could get into Atlanta with the morning traffic uh, on on a weekday morning. But uh, so it, it shortened by one day, I guess, the, the time, uh, and and that resulted in an increase of ruling elders by one half of one percent uh, over last year. So um, so that's something, but but that that continues to be an issue. Well, and. When you realize that Atlanta is in the middle of the heart of the PCA, 
and we could not get more rulers and elders to a rump meeting of the General Assembly. It's a failure. Now, when we adopted the procedures for new operation a few years ago, we were actually told on the floor, if this does not help ruling elder attendance, we will uh, we'll do something else. Ruling elders, our pastors that love ruling elders are listening to us. You need to understand the heart of this church is in the hands of ruling elders. The votes have basically been 60-40 um, on confessional issues for the most part, except for the women's issue this year. And if we simply had our conservative ruling elders there uh, from uh, across the denomination, I think it'd be very different. And we see that when things go to Presbytery. But the other problem is with ruling elders, most of our churches are what, Zach, 150 or less? Oh, in the PCA? Yeah, absolutely. You can afford $900 to send a, a minister and a ruling elder to General Assembly. Plus, you go to the high rent district in Atlanta, uh, it was expensive. And I know some churches now alternate. So one of our graduates in Mobile, this year his ruling elder came. They couldn't both come. But, uh, and so the assembly and actually the session that Frederick's on had a, a very couple of good overtures about how to help this issue. And obviously, if you've got an assembly that's run by clerics, they're not going to vote in favor of ruling elders. Well, and that's actually one of the things that Dr. Smith addressed uh, in, in his look back at the history of the PCA is that the the PCA began with ruling elder majorities in the assembly. Now, right. some of that's a function of the fact that it was building up as a denomination and ministers were coming in and we were building up a crop of ministers. But Dr. Smith notes that after several years, there was a teaching elder majority and there were various proposals to uh, to, to address that situation and to create parity. But as he says, they were consistently voted down by the teaching elder majority. So this has been a problem going back 30 plus years uh, in, in addressing the issue. I would also say, just to follow up on what Dr. Piper said, that uh, you know the statistics this year showed uh, 1,568 churches in the PCA. That's not mission churches. That's particularized churches. So each of those is allowed to send at least two ruling elders to the General Assembly. Even if each church sent only one ruling elder, that would be 1,500 ruling elder commissioners. So you know there are many causes, but but the the structure of the assembly, how the commissioners are elected how they are designated uh, does not in and of itself diminish the number of ruling elders. Now, it, it increases the number of teaching elders because every teaching elder in the denomination is is permitted to be a commissioner. But the, the mechanism is there for the ruling elders to become commissioners. I think cost, I think vacation time are the two biggest issues. We've addressed that somewhat, uh, somewhat as a church at, at Woodruff Road. We have uh, tried to, the past few years, put money into the budget to, to send uh, a, a ruling elder or two who who are not members of our church to assist another church, a sister church, with with sending a ruling elder commissioner to to general assembly. We've been able to do that the past few years, and and if we had you know churches that were willing to do that uh, more often, I think we could we could maybe um, have an increase there. And there's one other point I want to make here. Only 902 churches in the PCA were actually represented by this assembly. That's 902 churches out of 
1,568 established churches plus 344 mission churches. So it's difficult to say that our our denominational national gathering, our General Assembly, is even representative of the PCA as a whole. And, and I think um, it, it would be much clearer to us where the PCA is at in terms of, of health and its in fulfilling its mission if there was a greater representation of our churches in the Assembly making these national-level decisions. The only solution, and it is not at all contrary to the grassroots concept is a delegated assembly where each presbytery had to send an equal amount and you had a alphabetical order where somebody couldn't themselves monopolize that system then you could have genuine debate you could have every presbytery represented and over a span of so many years every church in that presbytery and you know one of the you can see maybe some some hints of how that might play out. You mentioned the administrative committee a few minutes ago. I mean, one of the things you see is in the in the committees of the General Assembly do function in effect as a delegated assembly because the committees, uh, each each presbytery is entitled to a representative on each committee. Uh, in the overtures committee, they're entitled to two representatives. But uh, so several one teaching elder, one ruling elder. Correct. And several years ago. For example, the administrative committee, the committee of commissioners, with with one representative from each presbytery, voted one way on a proposal. Uh, in 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 effect, what which was a delegated assembly, a committee made up of one rep from each presbytery voted a certain way on a proposal. But when the proposal came to the floor, the assembly voted the other way because at that point you were into a non-delegated assembly uh, made up with with a huge teaching elder majority uh, that that was not accurately reflective of the presbyteries. Um, so you can see some some hints maybe of, of how a delegated assembly would differ from what we have now. To all of that, I, I refer our listeners to another interview I did earlier this year with Mr. Charlie Knave, who's also a lawyer and a ruling elder of a church in Roanoke, and he's launched an organization called More in the PCA, and Rich Leno and another presbytery has uh, launched another grassroots organization, both of which are committed to encouraging ruling elder participation in every court of the church, not just General Assembly, but also Presbyterian. We commend their efforts, and, and I commend you all to tune in to that interview to learn more about some things going on in the PCA to encourage ruling elder participation. And a little advertisement, we have an excellent program here for ruling elders called Master of Ministry for Ruling Elders. It's core to our uh, pastoral theological curriculum. It can be all done online. And we're doing it to serve the church. We have the same program for deacons as well. Yeah, it's an excellent program. You get uh, some of the best courses offered here at the seminary, including Dr. Piper's Reformed Worship class, which is a uh, huge value and benefit to men serving on sessions and just anybody who's interested in Reformed worship. So last year, the Assembly elected ruling elder Alexander June as a moderator. Who served as moderator this year? Well, this year the moderator was... Uh Unanimously elected without opposition uh, was uh, Dr. Erwin Entz, um, and Dr. Entz is a pastor in uh, the metro D.C. area. He's at uh, City of Hope uh, in Columbia, Maryland. Um, he's been the pastor there since 2007, but he's been uh, very much involved at the denominational level. Uh, he has chaired the Overtures Committee. He chaired the um, Study Com Committee on Women in the Ministry, and uh, he was unanimously elected moderator this year. And did a very good job. He did. I think Roy Taylor put it this way. Dr. Ince moderated the 2018 General Assembly with the efficiency of an engineer, the wisdom of a diplomat, and the grace of a humble Christian. So I love the way we put things in the PCA. 
<laughs> on these committees of thanks and whatnot. Also worth noting, uh, I noticed Dr. Ince was the first bearded moderator of the General Assembly since our own Dr. Morton Smith in 2000. A little bit of interesting historical trivia there, though I will give props to Dr. June. Last year, he did sport some facial hair, just not a full beard, so um, I wouldn't count it as that. Why this is important, I don't know, but young, restless, and reformed Calvinists on the internet seem to take Take a, a, a real great liking to beards and facial hair. So I thought it was worth mentioning. Moving on, can you give us a brief overview of what was actually covered by the GA, just in terms of the schedule? How, how did how did the cookie crumble, as it were? Going into this year's assembly, start not beginning the assembly until Wednesday at one o'clock, we were concerned about how the schedule would go. It's the first year we've had that schedule. Would we be there uh, well into the the morning on Friday? Um, and, and actually, I thought the assembly, uh, well, for one, did a good job being streamlined and efficient. Uh, we actually did not get bogged down in as many procedural issues as in past years. The, uh, the re- agency and committee reports were presented efficiently. Um, the greetings by fraternal delegates were, were streamlined this year. It was, it was a more efficient presentation. Uh, this, the, the assembly this year... Uh, as with all assemblies, it had important matters. As with all assemblies, it had contentious matters. But I, I, my impression was this year's assembly had had fewer contentious matters than in the past. Uh, was able to reach consensus uh, on on more things this year than in the past. Um, did not seem to have protracted debate on as many contentious issues this year. Uh, so I, I, I felt uh, like it was a good assembly. Frederick, do you think though that uh, because Many people were opposed to the second half of the racial reconciliation report. It has a lot of bad theology in it about sanctification and a number of other things, uh, but chose, rather than knowing that the report would pass, to pass on debating the report. And were we right, you know, I've been challenged by somebody you know quite well, were we right not to point out the deficiencies in the second half of the or was it a wise thing to do uh, at this point for some bridge building? Well, I think the I think the racial reconciliation report was um, it was it was somewhat of a challenge for a lot of us because there was a lot of good in it um, that a lot that we could affirm in the report, and there was there were some things that we were troubled by. Uh, one of the challenges with these reports, as you know, is. The committee only votes on the so-called recommendations at the end of the report. So we had a report that was many hundreds of pages long, and the the bulk of that report uh, that, that is detailed and has many conclusions in it is not uh, able to be um, affected by any discussion or vote of the assembly. We're simply asked to vote on four recommendations. And so I think a lot of us looked at it and said, uh, you know, we... we there are things in the report we disagree with, but we don't see the wisdom of debating because our the scope of our debate under the rules is so limited. Um, and so, uh, let's not let's not uh, argue about what we can't can't change, what we can't affect. Would the scope be limited though if one of the recommendations is send this report to all the presbyteries? At that point, the report becomes open for debate. Yeah, and I think that's that's what happened. That was your motion on the women's report a few years ago, um, and and so yeah, that would have been that was one option for sure. Uh, 
But the most substantive developments typically come out of overtures. And this year, Overtures Committee represented 75 presbyteries in the PCA, and I want to consider just some of these. You know, not all of them are, are, are really um, noteworthy for a 45-minute podcast, but a couple of them I think are worth mentioning. The first is that Overtures Committee brought seven proposed amendments to the BCO um, that were then accepted by General Assembly and sent to presbyteries for consideration. These included a few that I want to highlight. The first is a change to BCO 2511 and this would require a 30 days notice for a congregational meeting to disaffiliate from the PCA. Does this compromise our grassroots Presbyterianism, or does it strengthen our connectionalism as a church? Yeah, well, and not just grassroots, but one of the founding principles was a church could leave anytime it wanted to. Yeah, and you know, if you let me just say about the the Book of Church Order amendments from this year's assembly as a whole. You could divide these into two categories, I think. One is somewhat technical changes to, to procedure. Uh, the other are more substantive uh, things. Um, this one maybe straddles the line between the two. Uh, so, so a little bit of background here. Last year, the Assembly passed an amendment to Book of Church Order to increase the quorum that would have to be present at a congregational meeting to vote on disaffiliation from the PCA. That amendment did not receive the necessary two-thirds vote to be uh, from the presbyteries to become a part of the Book of Church Order. So that amendment failed. And there was the, the same concern you, concerns you raised were raised last year, which is this is making it more difficult to leave the PCA. I think for a lot of us, it uh, it it uh, hearkened to the, the the what we hear see in the PCUSA, which is in order to leave the, the PCUSA, you have to have uh, so many percentage of your congregation present, you have to have a, a supermajority vote, and, and they in, impose significant hurdles. And I think a lot of folks said, we don't want to move in that direction. This, this amendment is somewhat scaled back in that there's no increased quorum requirement. There's no increased uh, uh, voting requirement. So a simple majority could vote to disaffiliate from the PCA. All it's saying is you have to give 30 days notice of a congregational meeting for that purpose as opposed to the seven days notice that are required, that is required for other uh, congregational meetings, you know, I have I have mixed feelings about this. I don't I don't necessarily like the direction that the uh, that this would move in, but I think on the whole, thirty days notice versus seven days notice is not a a um, it's not earth shattering for that change to be made. Um, one of the arguments that I think was raised was, well, is is this decision more important than say calling a pastor, which can be done on seven days notice? Um, or is it more important than selling the church property that can be done on seven days' notice? Why do we need 30 days' notice for this one issue? And I suppose those are things that will be debated in the presbyteries. And this is a good example of, of why I don't believe in block voting. I went to the assembly prepared to vote for the uh, amendment. But in listening to some, some uh, friends, uh, they pointed out to me what I think is, and I became convinced, the fatal flaw. And that is 30 days gives presbyteries time to begin to meddle. A. B. Gives presbyteries right to say, we don't think you met the requirements. So it opens the door to high-handedness, whereas a, in a week that cannot happen. And see, presbytery, who's going to make the decision now you, you met the requirement of the 30 days? And did you really notify all your members? Uh, and time to go out and recruit people who have not been to the church now, of course, that's the session's fault at the end of the day, but not been to the church in 10 years. 
this happens in these votes. Uh, and so uh, I turned, voted against it then on the basis of, of that reasoning. I agree with Frederick that it is, in a sense, in the middle. But And right now, in the current climate, it might be fine. But um, I, I do see the, the trend that he mentioned, and I, I just I think that the one week is sufficient for what we intended when we put that book together. And at the end of the day, what does expanding, uh, expanding the time of notice from one week to four weeks really accomplish for promoting connectionalism? It doesn't really—a really large church is probably giving more than a week's notice for this kind of decision, and it's really the, the, the small churches that, that don't need 30 days to get the word out and to get people um, really seriously considering this kind of move. So th- these are all interesting interesting points, and, and I heard them all as well, even though I wasn't serving as a commissioner. I was just an interlocutor roaming around the halls. Uh, another proposed amendment, this one to BCO 3219, that's being sent down as a recommendation to the presbyteries would allow counsel by any communing member of the PCA in all levels of church courts. What does this entail, and, and is this wise? Isn't this already loud? I mean, I looked at BCO. I mean, what what is what is why is this significant? Yeah, I you know this is one of those that I would class in the technical side of of amendments. Um, the so in in disciplinary cases before the courts of the church, uh, a no one is allowed to employ professional counsel. Now, what that has been interpreted to mean is no one is allowed to go out and hire a lawyer to represent him in uh, in a church court proceeding. Now, a, a participant in a proceeding can have a lawyer as counsel, but not someone that's been specifically hired and retained and paid to do it. It has to be another PCA member who agrees to serve as counsel, and that person can be a lawyer, and, and frankly, oftentimes is. Um, and that person can serve as prosecutor or as as defense counsel in a, in a disciplinary proceeding. But uh, do they have to be a member of the church right now? Yeah, my understanding... They have that's to be a the member difference. of the court. Yeah, yeah that's my, what BCO 93 uh, And this is what says. changes. This allows you to be in uh, Palmetto Presbytery and have Fred Marsnack come down... Yeah. And, and so, is your counsel. and and that that has changed now. And so, uh, you know, the danger of this, I guess, would be that uh, you would see sort of counsel shopping across the PCA to say, I'm I'm charged with with some offense uh, in a certain court of the church, and I'm going to go out and find someone from uh, the other side of the country to bring in to be my counsel because this person is an expert in this area or the rules of procedure or something to that effect, and that may be something that, that we see an increase in. And this sounds outlandish to us, that someone would actually agree to get on a plane and fly across the country at their own expense, or at least their expense of time, to represent somebody in a presbytery case. But, I mean, this could definitely happen. Oh, in a session case. Yeah. Forget the presbytery. Yeah, in a session It happens case. at presbytery level. If you're a member of the PC, I've gone up as, well, I guess as witness, not as counsel. Yeah, and so the the current provision says the accused person may, if he desires it, be represented before the session by any communing member of the same particular church or before any other court by a member of that court. Right. And so it's restricted, you know, in a presbytery, for example, it would be restricted to a member of that presbytery. Um, and I think the danger here is you do see what, what, what we would call in the legal world hired guns coming in uh, to, to, to act in these situations and... and 
frankly, we might see an increase of that. I would think less in a session proceeding, and it would be probably more used in a in a trial on doctrine in a presbytery is where you would probably see that occurring. We're already seeing it at the assembly level, and it's somewhat at presbytery level, where people are contacting ex-SJC members to help them put their case together for a complaint or an appeal. And there's two or three names that keep coming up that I, I hear. I talk to so-and-so. So some of that's going on. Uh, but on the other hand, they are experti- experts in those areas and can give wise counsel. They're not on the SJC any longer. And they're not getting paid for it. Yeah, well, we'll remember, we'll, we'll ha- this still has to be approved by two-thirds of the presbyteries. And, you know, even if it is, uh, we, you know, we, 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 all this is a speculation as to how it might work. So mm-hmm. we'll have to see. But you see this less innocent, I mean, more innocent than the previous one. I mean, yeah, I say, I mean, I think this falls more in the technical side yeah. of things than, than, than the other change. Now, there is a, a the most substantive of these seven proposed amendments to the BCO coming out of overtures was a recommendation to amend BCO 59.3, and is a two-step amendment here. First, to specify in that paragraph that PCA ministers may only solemnize marriages between one man and one woman, and the second step was then to give that, just that one paragraph, not the whole chapter, just that one paragraph, full constitutional status. Why is this significant? Is it merely legal protection, or will this serve to purify and protect our worship in the PCA? Well, I want to address several points here because there are several different layers to this this discussion as to what's happening here. Um, and and this was, you know, if you ask me, what are the what are the three top things coming out of this year's assembly? I would say this would be one of the three. And so let me give a little bit of background. Uh, when we talk about full constitutional status, we have an anomaly in our constitutional documents in that the uh, our Constitution is made up of the Westminster Standards, which are the Confession of Faith and the two catechisms, and then the Book of Church Order, which includes the, uh, the uh, government, uh, the directory of worship, and the rules of discipline. And except that the General Assembly has declared that the directory for worship is not uh, to be given full constitutional status. It is not uh, binding as a as a part of the constitution. It is it is simply something that's been adopted by the assembly as as the common term is pious advice to the to the church. Um, and so we have an anomaly where our directory of worship is not considered to be fully constitutional. Now. In the past, certain chapters of the confession have been made fully constitutional. Of the directory, of the directory have been made fully constitutional, and that happened when they were submitted to the presbyteries and were approved by two thirds of the presbyteries. And so they followed the process to amend the constitution to make those fully constitutional. For example, the the the, the chapters on the sacraments have been made fully constitutional. Uh, and so last year's assembly, in the 2017 assembly, there was an overture. Uh, to make chapter 59, which is the chapter in the Directory of Worship dealing with marriage, to make it fully constitutional. Now, I think I want to point out that this is an example of grassroots Presbyterianism because this overture came from a country church in Spartanburg County, South Carolina. It came up through our presbytery, Calvary Presbytery, and came to the assembly. And here it it generated significant discussion. Uh, It generated numerous overtures this year on the same topic. So when this overture came up last year, it was essentially carried over to this year's assembly, and then there were a number of other overtures on this topic that came uh, to the assembly. So this this shows you how one church can affect uh, the denomination. But in any event, 
after a, a robust discussion, uh, the, the Overtures Committee originally came to the Assembly recommending that this overture to make Chapter 59 constitutional, that it be, be answered in the negative, that it be denied. Um, uh, however, there was later uh, discussion among the Overtures Committee and agreement on a narrower, narrower proposal, which was just to make BCO 59.3, that one section of Chapter 59, just to make that constitutional after uh, amending its language somewhat. And that, that found uh, broad agreement in the Overtures Committee. I think there was only one dissenting vote in the Overtures Committee. And on the floor of the Assembly, I think there were, were a dozen or fewer dissenting votes. Twelve. Twelve yeah. dissenting votes. So, so that found broad agreement. My understanding was that, the, uh, that one faction agreed, liked this proposal, because the other language in Chapter 59 of the other provisions is unchanged, remains as it is. Uh, and, and, and another faction liked this proposal because uh, they thought there were problems with the language in Chapter 59 other than this one section. And so there was a, a really a, a very um, uh, pleasant compromise that was reached. This will go to the Presbyteries. As far as reasoning here, my understanding is that, uh, the, that uh, in addition to the, the provisions in the Confession on Marriage, that having something in not only our, our statement of doctrine, but in our, our, our statement of, of, of governing operations as, as to how the PCA is governed, having a constitutional provision on marriage provides certain legal protections to, uh, for example, chaplains who, who are serving in the military and who might be challenged on, on their position on marriage. So from what I understand, the, the confession of faith says that marriage is between one man and one woman. It's in a purely indicative statement. But in the Directory of Public Worship, it says that um, a PCA minister, as amended, will say a PCA minister may only solemnize a marriage between one man and one woman. And so now we have both sides of the coin, faith and practice, being protected by our constitutional documents if this is if this uh, particular amendment were to pass through the presbyteries. There were five recommendations from the Overtures Committee that were defeated, answered in the negative by the Assembly. And like you said, Overtures can be more substantive or just more procedural. Two of them were pretty procedural, but three of them, in my opinion, were really quite substantive, even if they were straddling the line. They had to do with what women and what other unordained uh, persons can and cannot do in the ministry of the Church at the local and at the national levels. First, there was this recommendation to amend BCO 9-7 and 24-11 to forbid assistant to deacons being referred to as diaconesses. This amendment, uh, this proposed amendment, was defeated by the Assembly. Why was this recommendation defeated? We, we have to talk about this recommendation in conjunction with probably the other recommendations that deal with either, either overtly or subtly deal with women uh, serving in, in roles. Um, and there seems to be a, uh, a, a, if not stated, an unstated broad consensus in the assembly now that we are uh, current practice, um, we should maintain status quo on, on women's issues. Uh, the, uh, the report that came out on women uh, in the ministry uh, uh, several years ago uh, made a very firm statement that women would not be ordained to office, uh, to the office of elder or to the office of deacon. Uh, however, it allowed women to serve in other capacities, um, and there are, there are groups within the church that disagree with women serving those capacities. There are groups that agree with it, 
And it seems to be that we've developed this consensus uh, or at least acceptance of, of the status quo on that. And so I think you saw some of that here, that we, we maintain the status quo of allowing uh, uh, assistance to the deacons to be called deaconesses. Um, but that has to be viewed in conjunction with the other uh, proposed amendments. And I think that the, the most important of those, and if, again, if you ask me for the three most important issues in this year's assembly, one, one issue that I would put there was the uh, pr proposal, the overture to allow unordained persons, including women, to serve on the board uh, of Covenant College and on certain other assembly committees and boards. I would say that was one of the most important issues at this year's assembly. Uh, and that issue was, was heavily debated in the overtures committee, but was defeated in the overtures committee by about a 60-40 split and was defeated on the floor of the assembly by an even larger margin. Um, and I, it, that, to, that was an important uh, issue at this year's assembly. Uh, I believe that came out in the, the correct way. I think you see some of the, the status quo issue there on, on women serving in the denomination. Um, you know, it's interesting. We've had, I think this is the third consecutive year we've had proposals on uh, to, to, uh, to change the rules on women serving in various capacities in the church. And this is the third consecutive year that those proposals have been defeated. So if there's one thing we can say with some confidence, it's that women are not going to serve on the permanent committees of the PCA, and unordained people are not going to serve on the permanent committees of the PCA. I should just put it that way. It's really a broader category. It doesn't have to do with, with uh, male and female. It has well, to do with ordained and unordained, yeah, right? Yeah, and, and I, I want to ask Dr. Piper about that because he gave an interesting uh, uh, observation on the floor of the assembly about the history behind the purpose of, of the committee, uh, General Assembly committees and boards, and why it's limited to to uh, to elders in the church. Got back to what I was saying a while ago, that the committee commissioners, uh, which I thought was brilliant, uh, was the way to have the church oversee um, the broader church oversee the committees and agencies. It was something that Dr. Smith labored to get in. And I don't know if you've had, you've done a podcast on the Thornwell Hodge debate on boards and agencies. Uh, confessing Our Hope has done at least two. I okay. think Bill did those with Dr. Wilborn in the past. I haven't so, done that. Uh, so the uh, Northern Press Chain approach was uh, that these are boards and agencies fairly independent of the assembly. The old Southern Presbyterian Church uh, conviction was because of the necessity of ecclesiastical oversight that there was no. That's why we initially we didn't even use the word border agency, but as Doctor as Mr. Marshnack pointed out, even though we use that term now, there's still nothing more than committees of the denomination as a whole. And for oversight, then there must be elders of the denomination overseeing the work of every committee and agency. It's supposed to be an equal amount of ruling and teaching elders, and that worked really well when there was accountability. Now it's more in name only, but we cannot give up the principle that it's the elders of the church that must oversee these uh, committees of the church. Yeah, and so I think, just to circle back to your original question, I think we are at a point now where, uh, although there are going to be efforts to push from, from both ends, for those who would push for a broader role for women towards, towards service on these committees or towards ordination to office, uh, and on the other end, there are those who are going to push to, to uh, cut back on these 
for example, the deaconesses that you raised earlier, uh, there seems to be a consensus that we'll maintain a status quo on that. We're not going to ordain women. Again, the, the study committee report was clear on that, that and, and I think it used the line, women will never be ordained. Um, and then on the other hand, though, there seems to be a consensus that we are not going to s severely cut back on what women are doing now short of ordination. I'm not saying I agree with, with one or both of those. I'm saying that seems to be the consensus within the assembly now. Well, you surely don't agree with one of them. <laughs> but I don't know anybody that's opposed to women assisting deacons. So I don't think I, I would disagree with you. Maybe they don't want to use the name deaconess. I don't think it's merely, I, I really think that uh, uh, that's a, a time-honored principle in Presbyterian government. Uh, I always used women in the church that way when I pastored, and they weren't simply having Bible studies. They were working with the deacons for all kinds of activities. So, well, does it become somewhat semantic then in that uh, if you're using deacon in, as, a, as an ordained office holder, but if you're using deacon in the sense of a servant or a minister, uh, if we call them, a, if they're an assistant and they're helping, and we call them by a name that means a servant or a minister, then then that becomes just semantic at that point. Yeah, deacon, deaconess, I think it's unnecessary because of the movement to have them ordained. So, but I don't think it's I don't think it's maintaining the status quo. I think it really is, uh, rightly or wrongly, a, a domino theory that uh, we give them the name and we give them the function. This was the argument that was used in the, in the CRC. You got gifts, name, and function, you might as well give them the office. So I think it's unwise in today's culture to use deaconess as a title, although historically Calvin used it and it's got historical merit. But in the climate today, what's being pressed for, uh, I think that... Um, it's probably wiser not to do it. I, I, I don't have a problem with it. Well, I think what your your concern is is that we see not only the, the title being used to describe the, the service that's being performed, but there are there are churches that would uh, would push all the way to the line uh, of ordination. And for example, uh, there there are places where we would see women commissioned as deaconesses alongside an ordination service for deacons and uh, would would be uh, you know functionally to the congregation how different does that appear if they're being commissioned at the same time that an ordination is occurring yeah. well but i really think that i mean frederick's hit the point this is the third year in a row um and it's not going to go away now i was looking for those statistics of churches that left i didn't have those in front of us because he said something about that very interesting to see where they went I think it would be a very useful study. I know it was reported. Um, what percentage of the churches left uh, the denomination, didn't close down, but went to uh, denominations that allow the ordination of women? A yeah, good it's, number. It's, it's about yeah. half of them that left went to. So that's telling us something right there what, about, about the movement that's, that's going on. Um, and uh, take both of you back before you were born. <laughs> when the PCA was formed, um, an Ascension Presbytery, which was, uh, was quite infamous for a while. They kept bringing an issue about the uh, charismatic movement. And the complaint was, we dealt with this last year. Why don't you guys be quiet? Now, 
shoes on the other foot. If we came three years in a row with an issue that was important to us uh, and were defeated soundly three years in a row, uh, you know what would be said? Why don't you guys accept this and quit bothering the church, bringing up something? Uh, and so they're not going to stop. And there's a one church in the Atlanta area now that has a commission of women. You read their website, they have full elder responsibilities. They serve almost as a shadow session. I yeah. Guess. <laughs> uh, other churches have uh, the deacons doing the work of elders and women operating as deacons. You know a church where you're from that actually still ordains deacons. So they say they don't. But. Yeah, I know, I know of at least one church from my neck of the woods that doesn't ordain men or women as deacons, well, but installs both as deacons. You're going to talk about that motion as well. That was the second of... Well. Uh, yeah, so we covered the first and the third of the recommendations from Overtures Committee that were defeated that have to do with women in ministry. The second one um, all that I saw in Dr. Taylor's report, and I didn't go back to the fuller notes, is that the con- uh, this recommendation to address the unordained diaconate issue, this recommendation was defeated. I don't remember what exactly the content of that recommendation was. To Can require you- churches to have ordained deacons, because what churches are doing is not ordaining deacons and having women function as deacons. But that was defeated. Yeah, that's great. And I think there were... Um, you know, I was not on the overtures committee this year. My understanding was that there were um, there were some problems with the wording of that motion and procedurally how it would be carried out. Um, as I recall, it uh, proposed in a broad investigation into the use of unordained deacons and uh, to to instruct presbyteries to investigate and to correct the situation. And there were some questions about how that would be carried out procedurally. That could maybe be refined and brought back in, in, in future years. Um, and I do think, though, that there is that broad group out there, that consensus that just says, you know, we, we're, we're not going to have ordained women as ordained officers, but we're not going to stir the pot on anything else. I think that is a motivation for, for a group at the assembly. Now, moving to, the, to my, last, uh, my last general question here, the commissioners also receive every year annual progress reports from the 10 permanent committees. We've hinted toward this a few times. You have the Administrative Committee, Covenant College, Discipleship Ministries, Covenant Seminary, Mission to North America, which is does church planning, Mission to the World, which does missions, PCA Foundation, PCA Retirement Benefits Incorporated, RUF, and Ridgehaven uh, Conference Center. Did anything stick out to you from their reports? Was there any particular uh, controversy or just something of interest that's worth speaking to today? Broadly speaking, these reports uh, are, I I don't know, Dr. Pipe would say 90% advertisements, for the agencies, there are statistics that are reported. There are um, there's progress that are reported. Many of them, there's a video that we watch of showing the work of the agency. But a lot of it is is simply an advertisement, um, and then maybe ten percent something substantive coming out of it. Um, you know, I I don't uh, recall anything sig- overly significant with with the agency reports, uh, except that in the Covenant Theological Seminary report. Uh, the president of the seminary, Dr. Dalby, did address the uh, the Revoice Conference and uh, and I think tried to establish some distance between the seminary and the conference, uh, indicated that the seminary is not supporting the conference, that they had a faculty member who was speaking at the conference uh, but was was merely presenting his reading of, of um, uh, Scripture, Leviticus 19, Le- Leviticus 19 and, uh, and, and so there was, there was some... Uh, element of that in the Covenant Seminary Report.
something that Dr. Dalby said that I was a bit curious about is um, he lodged a concern that some people were being very unloving to Covenant Seminary and, and harsh and overly critical. He said that at, at the front end of his remarks, specifically about Revoice, and then towards the end he said, but I invite you all to help us become more biblical. You know, Give us the constructive feedback and criticism that we need in order to, to be more, th- um, more thoroughly aligned with God's Word. Uh, how how can we walk this is more of a general question how can we walk this line between being really harsh and unloving which we don't want to be and then um but providing valuable feedback that seems to be rejected as harsh and unloving whenever it's whenever it's proffered up i invite sessions to do what i invite them to do with us i invite elders to come on campus to look over our shoulder we have visitations from our own accreditors we have visitations from uh, two different presbyteries and synods. And when those go out, I invite our churches to come. Uh, and I've been telling people, because of where we are, and we're not here, sitting here in a position to um, compare ourselves to other schools, but until sessions begin to send ruling elders and ministers onto the campus of any seminary that they support and know what's going on and scrutinize it carefully and ask the questions, you know, if Greenville's changed its systematics program to missiology, I'm sure our supporters would want to know why. What's what's the philosophy behind this? Is this merely name change? You know, anything about missionology or missiology, that's not a name change. That's a philosophy. But until the churches start uh, asking those kind of questions, not at General Assembly because you're not going to get answers there. They, you need to go visit the campuses. We welcome anybody that's listening to us and you want to come and uh, scrutinize what we're doing, we welcome uh, that visit. Uh, we want to, part of our philosophy is to be accountable, to, and we're not even known by the denomination. We want to be accountable to uh, the church. We have a number of ways that we do that, but we invite that kind of scrutiny. And oftentimes, uh, we have a, a program for any supporting uh, church to be in a supervised relationship with us, and we have anything that's a bit critical I send a letter to those sessions. Uh, we're thinking about this. What do you think? For example, a few years ago, the faculty wanted to close down the distance program. So we wrote the churches. And huge majority, please don't. We need it for men in our churches. And we listened. And I think that that's a good point because a lot of the discussion now that happens about these issues takes place on social media. And uh, some of that discussion is good. Social media serves a good function. Uh, there are uh, There's a certain sense of iron sharpening iron that's taking place on social media, and there's a certain sense in which um, the, uh, uh, the, um, the social media reaches folks who have no other access to information and discussions on these points. But that being said, there's a lot that can occur on social media that can be harsh. And there's a lot that can occur on social media that is out is taken out of context. Anyone can say anything with very little accountability. And so I think Dr. Pipe is right that if there is a serious concern, and there are serious, especially doctrinal issues, the discussion needs to take place in some form uh, apart from Amen. simply a, an Internet discussion. 
Our last question that I ask at these denominational debriefs is the open-ended one. What was the single most encouraging takeaway from General Assembly for you? And I guess we'll start with Dr. Piper and then go to Mr. Marcinak. And I also ask, you know, anything that you're alarmed or concerned about and any other final thoughts that you have? Well, I think I've expressed my concerns. I don't need to go back and visit that. The biggest takeaway for me was uh, turning down two attempts. Uh, Fred addressed one. It came from two different angles. One was to put unordained uh, men or women on certain boards and agencies. The other was to put women on the uh, board of Covenant College. Both of those uh, were fairly soundly defeated. And uh, that, for me, um, made it an assembly that I at least give a C plus to. <laughs> mm. That's high praise from Dr. Piper. <laughs> That's, Zach can tell us how often he gives C pluses in uh, in classes. Dr. Piper is a big softy. He's a very I, I'm too gracious grader. I am he way is, too easy. He is a very gracious grader. Yeah. Not with the General Assembly, though. No. Now, if you but, get a C plus from Dr. Dyer, that's worth writing home about. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I would, I would agree. I, I thought that was the the most significant issue. Long-term, biggest biggest issue for the PCA in this year's General Assembly is how that would be dealt with. The, um, you know, the the change to Chapter 59, the Book of Church Order, uh, was another big issue. Those were probably the two biggest issues, mm-hmm. I thought, coming out of this assembly. Um, you know, the Racial Reconciliation Report was another big issue coming out this year. So uh, I, I thought it was a good assembly. I um, was I was more hopeful about the denomination uh, than, than I... Uh, have been in the past, and uh, and so I think it's a, it was a good assembly. Uh, next year's assembly is in Dallas. We'll see what's on tap uh, for that. Uh, there, uh, there are not any uh, study committees or, or other matters carrying over to next year, so we don't have a preview uh, like we did this year, uh, knowing that racial reconciliation was coming this year. So we'll, we'll have to see what comes up. We'll get the results back on these proposed amendments to the BCO, some of which are, are very significant for the future of the church. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Um, if you're listening to this and you don't listen to the podcast all the time, I just want to encourage you to visit us in Dallas next year. We always have a booth, and uh, we may or may not have couches, but we will try to have at least some comfortable seating at the booth next year. We will year. have couches. Dr. Piper says we have couches. I guess he's paying for them. But we um, we will be at the assembly regardless. <laughs> he's paying for them out of my budget. Thanks, Dr. P. Um, but gentlemen, thank you again for joining me in the Thanks, studio. Thanks, Zach. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.